Dave, we ready to go? We're ready to go. A couple of thumbs. Okay. Well, got to take the glasses off. They're different glasses, but the same problem. Can't see with them. Can't see without them. January 9th. We're uh, here. We go. Wow. How about that? January 9th, 2022. Lecture discussion number 159 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, and Job. You might notice that. I got to start right out. I got uh, a present. Yay, a present. We all like our presents. And this is from Sherry from somewhere. We know where she's from, but we just can't remember. And uh, she sent this to me, and I thought it was hilarious. Sherry is another one of you folks out there that is very clever and very funny. And I've read her. Oops, I can't get it out of the box here. Now, I should have practiced. There we go. And what it is, it is a, let me read it here. Well, I probably should take it off the box. It is a Joel Osteen Inspiration Cube. Yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> I mean, who wouldn't want one of these? Apparently, there's uh, two or three hundred of his sermons. And every time you play a sermon, Joel Osteen gets at least 50 bucks. I'm probably wrong about that. It's probably a hundred bucks. Um, that's a joke, but nonetheless, probably true. Um, and anyhow, that's that's what she sent me, knowing that uh, I would obviously be very thrilled to get it. And I am very thrilled to get it. And we've already figured out how to get rid of all of his sermons, in case you were wondering, and use it to, to amplify Lori's phone music. So uh, it's uh, really a wonderful thing for us. It just says Joel, and that could be the book of Joel. And so I'm happy. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I... Uh, I can't even imagine people that buy this. And let me just say really fast, not to pick on Mr. Austin. Okay, I will pick on Mr. Austin. The man's worth, he and his wife are worth almost half a billion dollars. And that's a problem. A real problem. I know that's quite, what's the word I want? Common. The commonality of that in the, in the religious profession is pretty strong. Uh, you have lots of problems. You've got Matthew 19:4, the camel and the needle and the rich man. You've got uh, uh, Matthew 6:19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures um, that that moth and rust will destroy. Ezekiel uh, is in there as well. You can't serve both God and money. Matthew 6:24, right? Uh, so all of that is a problem, and I start seeing these. Very rich people. Uh, I wonder, what are they doing? You're not supposed to be the richest man in your city. But I know they are. And it's very, very, uh, how do I put it? It brings dishonor, I believe. And uh, they just are so greedy, they can't stop themselves. And this is another example. I don't know what this cost. Again, I'm calling it the Book of Joel. And I'm getting rid of all of his information because I think it's corrupted. It, I worry about it being Christless. And I can't imagine listening to 250 or 300 lectures that do not have Christ in it. What I mean by that is he might put Christ in there in occasional. I'd never know if he did because I've never heard it. But uh, so my apocryphal understanding might be limited. But nonetheless, most of the time I hear him say God. God, 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 God. I never hear the, hear the saving name of Jesus Christ. I never hear the blood of Christ. I don't hear. Do you believe uh, what Christ said? 
John 11.25. He is the resurrection and the life. I don't hear any of those things out of these guys. It's only God. They only say God. And, of course, it is the name of Christ that is called when you're seeking salvation. So, uh, to me, it's a an issue of... It's hilarious. I can't think of anything... If they're going to have 250 Joel sermons, Joel Austin sermons, they should have 250 times they play the baby shark or electric shock or any of something else to go along with it because it's going to be torture. Yes, ma'am. Is that amazing? Uh, yeah, and like I said, every time you play a sermon, he's going to get 20 bucks. I just, I don't know. I'm, that's a joke, kind of. But that's how they think. They're, they're all about the money. And the huge crowd and the adoration and the affirmation, it, it is it's borderline pathological narcissism. In any event, I, I appreciate the joke that uh, she knew that I would uh, I would find it hilarious, and I did. And me and Joel Osteen are all, as polar opposite as I believe we could ever be. Uh, but nonetheless, that's how it goes. Okay. What did I say? January 9th, 2022, lecture discussion 159 on the book of Joel. Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, and Job. I've barely got Ecclesiastes out there and Revelation out of there. Anyway, we're back and with another esoteric lecture. And yes, you have heard correctly. I am setting aside 1 Kings 13 and 2 Kings 23. I'm dropping them from my introduction. That, of course, is the mystery of the unnamed prophet and Josiah. Those two fit together. They, all these things fit together. And when you figure out, wow, he put the unnamed prophet with Josiah. Why did he do that? He obviously has a purpose there. And you should be intrigued and remain attentive to the cloaking of the identity of the unnamed prophet. He didn't name him. Why not? It's a very important thing. And that he is indisputably a portrait of Jesus Christ. And he is hidden. His name isn't spoken. Why isn't that the case? And what else does it connect to? And I hope that I do that today for you. Obviously, Christ knows the name of the unnamed prophet. After all, it's Christ who gives the hidden manna, right? He gives the hidden manna. He gives the white stone. And on the white stone is a new name to those who are going to be saved and be in the city of Jerusalem. The new name is one which is unknown. Nobody knows the new name. We are unnamed, if you want to think of it that way, inside of time. We are named outside of time, but we are still unnamed inside of time. For the time being, <laughs> never mind. Revelation 2.17, I suspect that when we receive our white stone with our new name, we are promptly going to tell everybody what our new name is, because we're all going to be in the new city of Jerusalem when we receive it. Or at least it, it's going to get us, it'll be our, our, our entrance, it'll be our citizen papers, if you want to think of it that way. But why, and what I want you to do, again, all all the citizens of the New Jerusalem have a new name, but why is it hidden manna? Why is he called it the hidden manna? Why is is the manna hidden? Who's it hidden from? Why is it hidden? Why does God hide Psalm 10.1 is ultimately where we're going here, right? Because God does that. He hides he stands afar off. We've got into that discussion a little bit. Maybe that's a little bit louder. Is that better? Okay. Immediately, we should notice uh, the central theme of Revelation 2.17. There's a hidden manna, a secret manna, if you prefer, and a secret name. And both are given to those who overcome. They're the overcomers. That's what he says. You overcome. Well, what are you overcoming? 
Why do you get the hidden man and the white stone in the new name? Because you've overcome something. It's those who do not succumb, succumb, succumb to the lies of Satan. Matthew 6.13. Matthew 6.13 is the uh, Lord's Prayer, right? Uh, essentially protect me from the lie of the evil one. So those who do not succumb to the lies of Satan, Matthew 6.13, Revelation 13.5-6, Revelation 13.17, Revelation 14.9-11, that of course is the taking of the mark. Those who do not take the mark, who do not succumb to the lie of Satan, who go through their lives believing what Christ said, John 11.25, those are the ones who have the hidden manna and the hidden name and the white stone. The Apostle John, right, the uh, the Holy Spirit-inspired human instrument, he wrote the Gospel of John and, and the book of Revelation. So he would have known that Revelation 2.17 connected directly to something that he wrote in his Gospel, specifically John 6.53-58. through 58. And those are the words of Jesus Christ himself, John 6.58. This is the bread which came down from heaven. He who eats this bread will live forever. John 6, 32-35. Christ declares himself to be the bread of life, the manna. He says, I am the manna. And he repeats this at John 6, 48-51. I am the bread of life. I am the hidden manna. That's what he's saying. So he gives you the hidden manna, which is him, a white stone and a new name. And if you are one that eats the hidden manna, then you're going to live forever. That's what he says. As God, the God of the living, the living one. And again, that is uh, Matthew uh, 22, 32, Genesis 28, 13, Deuteronomy 5, 27, 2 Kings 19, 4, Exodus 3, 6, 3, 16, Mark 12, 27. You're going to live forever. And he's the one that defines that. When he says you will live forever... He's the one that decides what live means and what forever means. And to repeat that, which I can't repeat enough, in my opinion, it's the living God who defines living. And you don't get to define living. I don't get to define living. We don't define living. He does. And the the uh, reciprocal of that is death. He also defines death. He's the God of the living one. He's the living one. He's the God of the living. He's the living one. So it's Jesus Christ who assigns the meanings of life and designates designates the definitions of death. Again, to the living God, as you know, we've covered this quite a bit recently, but now we've taken this a little sabbatical, so we're going to catch everybody up that might not have heard it. Death is a place. One is dead if they choose the place of death, and that is to choose to be isolated from God and if you're isolated from God, that's to be in the place of dead, of the dead. Everyone who is isolated, everyone who rejects Christ, is in the place of the dead. And they are themselves dead. Now, that's not popular. That's not going to be on this little blue cube. It's not going to be there. Because you don't get, you're not going to be popular if you do that. You're not going to make money if you do that. You're not going to have a huge audience if you do that. You're going to have a narrow, small audience if you say the only way you can have life is for you to reach out and grab the hand of the living God, Jesus Christ. Have the blood of Christ. Believe Christ. That's how you get saved. 
it isn't from anything I believe on this. Well, there's nothing on there now. We have, we have replaced it with country western music, Tennessee whiskey. But anyway, where am I now? <laughs> Death is not only a place, but is also extended to those who physically remain alive. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. God has, he is outside of time. It's always important to understand that. Those who physically remain alive, but who reject their creator and hate him and hate his truths. The realm of the dead expands, therefore. It's not just people who have gone to the place of the dead, but it is people who I would call the walking dead. Now, somebody has stolen that and made a movie out of it, I think. But they're the walking dead. Uh, and, and if I have the walking dead, then I also have the new city of Jerusalem, the walking living. So how about that for a, movie, a TV show, the walking living? See, so I have, again, the God of the living so defines the terms. And always remember that Jesus Christ tells you, he says, Revelation 1.8, Revelation 1.17, Revelation 3.14, John 1, 1 through 4. Colossians 1, 15 through 18, he always, Revelation 13, uh, 8, he says over and over and over again, I am outside of time. I am, I am, I am, I am. He's in the present, which means time is not impacting him at all. He can see time motionless. He can see all motion. And, and he can stop all motion in his mind. Everything he sees simultaneously, it puts him in the presence. In the present. And he knows all things. He says so. He and Peter had that great conversation at the end of the book of John. And Peter finally solves the question. I, you know all things. You know everything. You're omniscient. He sees all things, Christ does. He sees everything. Christ names each and every star. I said that a couple of weeks ago. In the visible universe, every single star that you can find with your Hubble telescope, or now they've got a new telescope, I can't remember what it's called, but it's, they just unfolded it, and it's going to be able to see deeper into the universe, or the known or the visible universe. But everything that it sees has a name, because Jesus Christ named them Psalm 147.4. Now, why did he name everything? We've had that discussion, right? He's obviously got a reason. He's, that's going to connect now to the, to the new name that you get. He knows the names of everything. Not just the stars in the universe, and he names everything. You're talking about an un, un a, a, a mind that is outside of time that conceived time, and that is omniscient. And and, uh, and again, there's thirty to seventy billion trillion stars, and and he clearly loves to name his creation. He has a hidden new name for every living creature. Now, I should interject that omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence are not causation. I should say that a lot. I know that's something that Dave has to deal with quite a bit. He gets on the Internet and he fights with people over this very subject. Not fight. It's, it's uh, what do we call that, intense discussion. It's not a fair fight, Dave said. But I have to say that in omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence, and omnibenevolence are not causation. And for those uh, uh, that uh, have the philosophy of the atheistic physicists, which is called uh, super deterministic, 
Um, so if you have that philosophy, if you succumb to the common super-deterministic philosophy of atheism, and the physicists have done that, then uh, I'm going to give you a few examples of why you might reconsider here. John Stuart Bell is one of my heroes, along with Isaac Newton and Max Planck and a few others. John Stuart Bell said, you must choose between spooky action at a distance, which, as you know, is entanglement and free will. He is interdeterministic or indeterministic. Uh, so, in other words, he's saying that you cannot believe in entanglement and uh, and free will, without understanding the free will component there. Nicholas Giesen or Geisen, without free will there could be no rational thought. And he's absolutely right about that. Uh, there's no rationality. If there isn't any free will, if you're not making any decisions, if you don't have any accountability, if you don't have any involvement in the, your processes at all whatsoever, zero, which is super determinism, if, you, if that's where you are, then you have no, you were saying there is no rational thought. There's just complete chaos and nonsense disguised as rationality. It's an illusion. And of course, that is the, you can find thousands of videos on YouTube saying that there is no free will. And the church has glommed onto that, unfortunately. And that's evolutionary uh, philosophy, as I said, atheistic philosophy. Anton uh, Zeilinger, he, uh, he, he said, We always implicitly assume the freedom of the experimentalist. What he's saying is, I'm doing an experience. I'm sorry, an experiment. If I'm experimenting, I have to have freedom. If I don't have freedom, and he says, this is the assumption of free will. This is a fundamental assumption, and it's essential to science. If there is no free will, there's no science. And I agree with all of those. Okay, anyway, this discussion returns us to Genesis 3.17. Cursed is the ground for your sake, in Genesis 2.17. But the tree of knowledge of good from evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. There is your indeterminism versus your superdeterminism right there in the Bible. Who's on the side of superdeterminism in Scripture? That would be Satan. He's very clear about it. There is no free will. There's only superdeterminism. And God, of course, opposes that. He opposes that by, by demonstrating accountability. There is accountability. Without, if there's accountability, there has to be freedom of thought. We've been in that discussion many, many times, but I just wanted to point that out to you today. The, the tree of surely die is what I call it. The tree of physical death, the curse of the second death, Revelation 20.14, Revelation 21.8. The central question then becomes, if you eat of that tree, you end up in physical death. How is it that physical death is for our sake? When I say we, I meant Adam or Eve. And that leads uh, again uh, to Genesis 2.7. 3.19, Ecclesiastes 3.18 and 20, the questions that arise after the, out of those. Those are the dust verses. Why are mankind and animals made or formed from dust? Remember me asking that a few weeks ago? Why? Are angels made from dust? No. But animals and humans are made from dust. So of the three kingdoms, the angelic is the one that is excluded from dust. Why is that? 
Why are mankind and animals made form from dust? Why does the body, when it dies, return to dust? Ultimately, these are the theological questions of death and dying, which causes the question of the purpose of the theological questions about death and dying. If that made any sense to you, I'm really sorry. Not really. I'm fake sorry. But I hope it made sense to somebody. If you thought no one's raising their hands here, let the record show that nobody here understood what I just said, which is cool. That's my plan, right? But if you did understand it, congratulations, you're weird. And Cliffside did not make you weird. You were weird before Cliffside. Because you see, theologians and philosophers for centuries have contemplated which religion best explains death and dying. And we're going to say the blue cube notwithstanding, we're going to say the Bible best explains death and dying. In fact, the Bible is the only viable explanation of death and dying. And and for those of you who are familiar with the debate, this has often begun with the statement that death does not speak, or death is mute, also sometimes called the silence of death. The silence of death is the barrier between the physical and the spiritual, the abode of the dead. There are two places where the physical, physically dead reside, either with Christ or apart from Christ. And i got to say real quick, you should know when you get into this discussion that you have Samuel, right? The, uh, the Samuel, 1 Samuel 2, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 28, 15. Samuel demonstrates that he has continuity, that he has intelligence, that he has the ability to vocalize, he has physical form. Lazarus the beggar and the, and the rich man all can speak. Death is not mute in the Bible, Luke uh, 16, 27 through 31. Uh, God has done this. He's the one, this incommunicable condition. He's the one that put the barrier or the veil or whatever, the chasm, uh, the canyon, or whatever you want to call it, the separation. He's the one that has put that between the intermediate state and the physical state. So what's the obvious question? Yes, you're right. You get it again. Why did he do it? He restricts us to his Bible. So you want to find a, a cube thingy that constantly refers to his Bible and reads his Bible and talks about his Bible and teaches the Bible. That's what he restricts us to. He does not have great flowing words of emptiness, but he hides the dead and the living to preserve things. And one of those things I believe that he is preserving is free will belief. Because we already know from the rich man, what's the first thing? That's an evil, rich Pharisee, by the way. Gosh. First one in the new year. Yeah, doggone it. Didn't even last one day. But anyway, the, the, the God hides the dead from the living. And part of that is to, is to preserve free will belief because he demonstrates or he allows us to see that the rich Pharisee, the extremely rich Pharisee, was profoundly evil in Luke 16. You have to pay attention to the fact that that Pharisee is evil. If you don't, you'll miss the whole point of the, of the I believe they, many call it a parable, but I think it absolutely was a true event. The unsaved dead 
wish for all to share their fate. And that is because that is the dream of Satan. One of the plans of Satan is to make as many people share his fate as possible. And they, they, he uh, deceives them. Death is the end of the salvific opportunity. And you have to ask, why is that? Death f- focuses the dying. As we know, that's Ecclesiastes 12.1. The dying, there's an incredible opportunity until you die to be everlasting living as Christ defines both. Okay, the Far East, Hinduism, to be the most prominent example, does not give equality to life and death with beingness. Now that, I hope, gets through really quickly. I hope it does. The quality or the state of existence. Beingness has ex- is existence. And Christ calls himself the being. That's what the I am means in the Greek. He is the being. Hinduism says there is no equality uh, with beingness with respect to what we call life and what we call death. And their logic it proceeds this way. If life has a beginning and an end, then neither the life or the death is real. That is, let me repeat that. If life has a beginning and an end, then neither the life or the death is real. Both are illusionary because beginning, the, the beginningness, if that's a word, you can always make a word by adding ness, because beginningness, existence cannot begin. If you have existence, that's what the Hindus say, then it didn't begin. There is no beginning to existence, and it can't be extinguished. There's no end. And therefore, if there's no end to beingness, then something that you think ends it is not real. So death is certainly not real. It's simply the end of the illusion that life is inside of time. That's Hinduism. Death has no impact, then, on the reality. It is simply part of the illusion that ends the illusion of life. If that made any sense, then you're really hopelessly weird now. I'm not an expert in the Far East theologies. I, I believe I have a this basic summary that I gave you. I think it's shallow, it's cursory, but I think it's reasonably accurate. But So I want you to notice today the fundamental characteristic of dualism. They're pounding dualism. Oh my goodness. Is it for me? Lori answered it almost immediately. Let me see who it is. Oh, it's somebody I know. Doggone it. I would have loved to have talked to them. They're in trouble and they know it. There was an opportunity there. They never, you know, I just got too many safety protocols. I need to tamp that down so I can answer that phone. There's an hour of, of jokes right there. Anyway, again, just notice that fundamental characteristic of dualism that's in Hinduism. That's that's Genesis 2.7. Genesis 2.7 says it's dualism. There's dust and there's the breath of the spirit of life of God. Okay, Body and breath is present in Hinduism in a sense that they believe that existence cannot be tampered with. And this commonality, this dualistic view of reality is represented in Hinduism. It's represented in Buddhism, Greek philosophy, Judaism, and of course Christian theology. It's everywhere. Do I need to make some correction? (laughs) Okay. Christian theology, though, isn't the same. Don't have any sameness. Christian theology stands alone. The Bible is alone. Everything is the same except for the Bible. 
Everything has a everything has a law based system except for scripture. Christian theology stands in stark divergence to Hinduism, Buddhism, and Greek thought. Obviously, Judaism and Christianity are certainly in close sympathy. Uh, the continuity of the individual existence is assured. That's it's, that's a commonality that can't be ignored. The fundamental differences or the chasm occurs with Judaism and Christianity with the person of Jesus Christ. So have a blue cube that has Christ in it everywhere. Never have anything but Christ. That's where the stark divergence occurs. Israel rejects Christ as the Messiah, whereas in Christian theology, the sinless, perfect life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the basis of eternal life. As Christ so defines it, because he is God in hiding, if you wish to think of it that way, in humanity for the time being when he was here on earth. He defines life, and he is life. He says, I am life. I am beingness. I am existence. That's what the I am means in the Greek. He is the embodiment of life. There is no life except through him. All life comes from him, and he preserves life. But the point is, yea, finally a point, there is some unity in the major religions with respect to death and dying, specifically the removal of death from accomplishing discontinuing. I can't even say it. Discontinuity. More water. I am confined to this right now because we're having problems with my little leveler thing and then we don't know why. Because, well, I don't know why and that's why. But if death has no impact on continuity of the mind, then death is not real. Death has no ability to destroy existence or self or personhood or your continuity of your soul. Uh, what quick, quickly relies, arises in this relationship uh, is this uh, is this side by side of death and aging. So this relationship between death and aging. We're marching towards death, some of us. We're getting older. I look at myself in the mirror. I'm disintegrating day by day. I'm not, uh, I'm looking worse. I am, I have no concept of what's happening to me in the sense that it does not, I I see myself in the mirror and I go, that's not me. I have an, I have a mind that says whatever you're looking at is not you in any way. And we're, we all do that. So this is the Isaiah 65:20 problem: death and aging. Aging. Uh, and you're like, uh huh? What's he talking about? Why do we waste away? Fragility comes. What What is being taught by God with aging? Because he, he says it is. You know, we have uh, we have all of these verses that tell us there's something significant here. We have disease and aging, and they're they're side by side, but we have death and aging, which is also side by side. And he mentions it in Psalm 90, verse 10, right? Three score and ten. So why do we have this aging process? And old age uh, brings fear. Uh, Vince Lombardi said, "Old, old age makes you afraid. 
And he's absolutely right about that. I had never experienced it until I got it to the plate in a tense softball game. The whole team is depending on me, and I'm, I think I'm 66, 67 years old. They go, oh, yay, Chronister's here. He's going to hit it out. Boy, oh, he's going to put the ball in deep. We're going to score the run. We're going to win. And I panicked. Too much pressure. Old age makes you afraid. It's absolutely true. I did badly. Just let me tell you that. I embarrassed myself. So here comes the question. If death is not real because it it cannot impact existence, then is aging real? I should interject that there is likewise agreement. uh, Oh, let me go back to Isaiah 65.20. Isaiah 65.20 implies that wasting and uh, agedness is removed in the millennium. There is no aging in the millennium. There's just instant death at 100. Now why? What's the difference? Why that change? And you make the case that Christ is on the throne, and that's the preeminent issue, and that is a definitive issue, and that's part of, that is obviously the, the reason that this happens. But uh, what, there's still, nonetheless, is an, is an instant. There's no aging system in the millennium. Why not? Why did he remove it? And again, I should interject, there is likewise agreement with respect to the current status of living beings on the earth among most religions. Okay, all living beings defined as Genesis 2-7, Genesis 7-15, Genesis 7-22-9, Genesis 9-18, or 8-17, Ecclesiastes 3-18 and 20, all of those are defined as having the breath of the Spirit of life, the breath of God, Ecclesiastes 12-7. That's fact one. Okay, that's what a living being is. Fact one, it's in the Bible, it's not on the cube. I guarantee, I go through the cube, I look at everything. No, I won't. I won't do any of it. I'll just listen to Baby Shark and shock myself. I hit myself with a hammer in the face before I listen to that cube. But I'm going to take a risk here that there is none of what I just said. Genesis 2, 7. Fact 1. Ecclesiastes 12, 7. Fact 1. Being a living being is having the breath of the spirit of life, the breath of God in the body that has come from dust. You are a living being. And all of these uh, living beings have a historical and a temporal existence or this time on current earth, your 70 years or whatever you uh, manage to make. You, some of us will make 80, we hope. A few of us will make more than that. But as a general rule, 70 is uh, an interesting number with regard to the age of a human being. And, of course, the animals have far less. Some have more, but most have far less. So all of these living beings that have the breath of God have a historical and a temporary existence or time. Existence, don't confuse that. I'm saying existence as we see existence, not as God sees it. Again, he defines that. This this small temporal time on the current earth, this, this vapor, and this is called reality of the temporal historical existence in theologies. So... Again, death brings only an unqualified end of the individual personal experience on earth. The personal immortality is secure. That's fact two. Fact one is what defines a living being. Fact two says their immortalities. Brings up the immortalities. Okay, so back to the theology of death. Here we go. What is the purpose? Why is it for our sake? What why is it for the sake of the animals as well? Why this universality of death? 
I've already alluded to some of the uh, reasons, the obvious reasons. Uh, I gave clues, I hope. Uh, and then how does this have a commonality to the questions uh, of Revelation 9, 5 through 6? Because there I have what? I have 150 days of no death. Remember those lectures? So why is there death? And then why is there not death? Why is there aging? Why is there not aging? You can figure out why there's aging by why there's not aging. You can figure out why there is death by why there is not death. What is the purposes of aging? What is the purposes of death? What is the purposes of dust? (coughs) I'll bring that up again as we go along. How does that 150 days of no death fit in here? What else is, is here? During the tribulation, God suspends death for 150 days. I suspect that he suspends all death. There's 150 days of no death, not just for humanity, but for all living beings, which includes the animal kingdom, if I am correct. He does it for both. If I am correct, usually it's followed by, uh, duh, yeah, that's right, absolutely. So what's he proving there? He obviously is explaining why there is death by why there is not death. He gives you the reciprocal or the inverse or the opposite. Pick your thesaurus word. Well, foremost, life, I, what I believe number, number one here, if you want to think of it that way, life as we consider it, because most of humanity is non-theological with regard to life. They think they have life, and they don't. Some of them are walking dead. Some of them are walking living, and they don't know. The living, I hope, know. But assurance of salvation is a very difficult process. The walking dead, they have no idea. They really don't, by my experience. So, the first reason he suspends death is uh, to tell us that in without death, uh, first off, life is a life as we call it is a corrupted environment with wickedness and evil in abundance. Look at Genesis six five, how bad it gets. Alongside of nine uh, of Revelation nine five through six, that they'll tell you how bad it is. What we call life is really not life at all. And this universality of death ends this. Otherwise, um, you've got lots of problems. The historical personal experience, as I'm calling it, and that's what it's called theologically, would be uh, accompanied by unendurable suffering and misery. We have enough of that as it is. Look around this world right now. Look around our own country. Our country is collapsing all over the place. We have uh, the death of children is unbelievable. The death of children in the world is the number one Here's what it is. Let me lay it out for you as hard as I can. Probably won't be on the cube. Abortion kills more children than anything else in the world. It causes death. More children are butchered and murdered than any other cause. That's the World Health Organization even says that. And they're not exactly prone or disposed, predisposed to say things like that. Okay, Revelation 9.6 confirms how unendurable suffering and misery is if you can't die. Mankind cries out to die. The misery is so bad. And they cannot, death flees from them. So he makes that point. What you call life is this 
what we what he you call life is really just a historical personal experience that is in a condition of misery. Now I, I don't disagree that there are some wonderful things, but understand universally that this world is not a pleasant place, and he's coming to fix that life in sin without end. If we were all, if it went past 150 days, if it went on forever, life with in sin without end is horrifying. It is the biblical definition of hell, of torment. And look at Revelation 20:10 and Mark 9:47 through 48, Revelation 14:9 through 11. The current condition of the earth is imposed, is this imposed limit to suffering and evil that death provides. So that's one of the reasons it's for our sake. Death restricts the framework of time of every living being. So there's an end. Just imagine if you got to the age of a hundred and you didn't die. That's pretty much the condition of somebody that is in a body that's not functioning and they can't communicate. And that's a horrible condition. Death ends that. Death restricts the framework of time of every living being. As for mankind, this imposed limit allows, if you are have any cognitive capability, it allows for retrospection, self-assessment, repentance, belief. Ecclesiastes 12.1 Remember your created creator before the silver cord is loosed. That wonderful song that that man wrote uh, and the guy in England sang is just fantastic. And so all of that is surely for our sake, but don't call me surely. Obviously, for those of you who have rushed ahead, you say, okay, i got to get going ahead of this guy. I am placing Genesis 3.17, curses the dust, the ground, with Genesis 2.7, 2.8, where, where Adam is made from the dust. The Lord God made Adam from the dust of the ground. Genesis 3.19, and to the dust you shall return. Ecclesiastes 12.7, the dust that which is made from dust, animals, the bodies of animals, the bodies of humans, dust shall return to the earth, Ecclesiastes 3.20. All are from dust. All living beings from dust. That's what he's saying. As God defines living beings. Now I'm separating the angels out of this for today, but you know that I'll bring them back in. All of these, these dust verses, if you will, are in my humbler opinion. That's become something on, on face or on YouTube or no, where is it from? Uh, texting. I didn't know that when I said in my humbler opinion that it go all over the place. Uh, all kinds of people use that now. They say, yeah, what do they call it? I-M-H-O or something, right? Am I right about that? Yeah, they text I-M-H-O because of me. In my humbler opinion, they're doing that. It's amazing. I, I can't believe the power I have without a cube. My goodness. Why would... You, see... It occurred to me that somebody who puts a device in my house could also find out what I'm saying. Now, I don't know if there's a transmitter in here. I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but I do have one of these boxes that tells it, that talks to me. I don't talk to it, and I unplug it, and I disconnect it, and I soak it in water, and then I set it on fire. That was my plan as soon as I got it, but they made me take it. But I also am very suspicious of this kind of stuff, um, if I said, for example, hi, Joel, I'm willing to give you another $200 million, would I get a phone call? We'll find out. I just did it. Okay. I'm, that makes me mad. 
It really makes me mad. I think it's despicable. I think it is indefensible. I think that it is, it is greedy. I don't think it is helpful. I think it's self-aggrandizement. Give it away for free. Don't sell it. If you're so, if you think it has so much value, make it free. They would never do that. Okay. Those of you who rushed ahead, cursed is the dust. He is, he's saying that and he's connecting that to Genesis 2-7. And so all of these dust verses, uh, should be seen as one little unit inside the Bible. They explain the dust question. The first of the dust questions is naturally, what are the dust, que- the dust questions? What are they? How many are there? There's a lot of them. The second of the dust questions is equally undisguised. Why are there dust, cl- dust questions? Why do people ask dust questions? Who decided that we should ask about dust? Me. I'm the decider on the dust questions. No, I'm not really. The what is far less uh, uh, problematic, by the way. <sighs> wow, I have regressed. I, I found lectures where I said it something like 15 times. That's why I stopped saying that, which I won't say, <laughs> hopefully for the rest of the half hour or 45 minutes I got. <coughs> okay, so we're going to begin with the what's because I'm lazy by nature. The first of the what question is why was there dust? And you might think, oh, well, that's a why question. No, it's a what question. Why was there dust is an answer to what are the dust questions. And you follow that, professional psychiatric evaluation should be considered. Anyway, why was there dust? Is a crucial discussion. What is dust? Become, if there is, what would you say? Why is there dust? You first gotta figure out what is dust? What is dust? Where did the dust come from? Where did the dust from, that was, that God made the, the primal dust, I want to think of it that way, the first dust that he made the bodies of Adam and the bodies of the animals from, where did that dust come from? That would be a better way to word that question. God formed animals and Adam from dust. Where did he get the dust? Which dust did he select? Why did he select it? Where did that dust come from? How much dust was there? I submit that we can all agree that dust also has an inherent relationship with death because I got physical death. Death and dust is equivalent to death and sin in that sense. The terms are essentially interchangeable. Sin is unmistakably identified in Scripture as the agent for death. Both deaths. The death one is the death of the body and death two the second death. So sin is associated with both death one and death two. Revelation 20.14, Revelation 21.8. The eternal state, destination of the dead, the removal, the isolation, the confinement of those who hate and reject the saving blood of Jesus Christ. That is death. There can be no dispute as to sin being equated to death. Death and sin, side by side. I'm off the obviously suggesting that dust is likewise intrinsic with death. Though the symbol of dust is restricted to the physical, the body. It's a transitive property if I'm right, it, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Dust, therefore, is appropriately equivalent to the first death, the body death. So, so there, there's, there's where sin is more uh, 
extrapolated. It, sin has more and more depth to it than dust does. So when I say sin and death, those are identical. And if I say dust and death, they have a relationship, but it is it is, not, it is limited in that sense. But dust, therefore, is appropriately equivalent to the first death, the death of the body. Allow me to uh, reword then Genesis 2.7. And the Lord God formed Adam from the death of the ground. If dust is equal to death, then I should be able to do that. The Hebrew words are, are a pair and ha de meh. Same words as Ecclesiastes 12.7, Ecclesiastes 3.20, Genesis 3.17, and Genesis 3.14. They're all the same word. Uh, God sentences Satan in Genesis 3.14 to death. Eating dust. Revelation 22, to eat dust for all eternity. The second death. Satan was condemned to eat death for all eternity in 3.14 of Genesis. And he said dust. But it's death. How is it that Satan is condemned to eat death? What's, uh, how, how is Satan eating death for all eternity? A question I've asked many times. And, and I'm peculiar. I'm glad you agree. I prefer eccentric. Uh, I can't help but be curious. Why would God form animals and animal bodies from fine dust? I want again to know what caused the dust. Better question. What turned to dust before the bodies of animals and the body of Adam were made from dust? The primeval dust. The first dust. Where did it come from? How do I get dust? If you think about dust in our today's terms, uh, you think about the dust bowl. You think about dust storms. You think about desert sand storms or desert sand. Uh, those are high entropic, entropic considerations or conditions. In other words, resulting from chaos. Disorder. The higher the entropy, the greater the simplicity or the chaos. Which is, as you also know, sends the students of Scripture to Genesis 1-2. That's the tohu. Wei-bohu. Usually translated formless and void. Right? The earth was formless and void. Also, Jeremiah 4.23, uh, without form and void. In Jeremiah 4.23, there's an invader left Israel desolate and destroyed. That's the same words that are used in Genesis 1-2. The tohu, hu. The invader brought destruction. Isaiah 45.19 translates tohu as waste. Uh, Isaiah 24.10 is usually translated confusion or chaos. Isaiah 44.9, futility, all the same word. I want to know. Thank you. I see the hands. I want to know. What's that mean? So again, what event, what incident did the dust of Genesis 2.7 cause? Or where did the dust of 2.7 uh, originate? What event caused it? Repeating the question, what turned to dust before the bodies of animals and the bodies of atoms were made from dust? Something's got to turn to dust, don't you think? Because that's entropy. That's chaos. That's waste. There's something wrong. Why is there any dust at all? It's Genesis 1-2 or 2-7. Both. Uh, notice Genesis 2-8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put, the ad- and put Adam that he had formed. The dust was not from the garden. It was outside the garden. So, again, where, why? 
What? Was there any dust in the garden? Ask that question. If you had to go outside the garden to get dust, was there any dust in the garden? Did he have to go outside to get it? Bad question. Theologically unsound. Denies omniscience. Denies timelessness. I can make those mistakes. I can say these words. Because I am a highly trained religious professional. When did God plant the garden? How long had it? Let me just say this. I'll answer it. Was there any dust in the garden? Was there any death in the garden? Because if dust and death were the same, was there any death in the garden? No, there wasn't. I submit it not at the time Adam was placed inside the garden. Now, there was death in the garden at some point. Because I had Satan who was in death. He's walking dead, right? And I have Eve who chose death and Adam who ultimately chose death. So, uh, I have death in the garden, but there was no death in the garden. There is death outside the garden if you say dust is death. Where did that death come from? Anyway, when did God plant the garden? How long had it been there before Adam was formed? Well, you've got to count the days, the third day, the sixth day. You know, i got the third day and i got the sixth day. That brings us to Genesis 1.5, 1.8, 1.13, 1.19, 1.23, 131. So the evening and the morning, he keeps repeating that. The evening and the morning, the evening and the morning, the evening and the morning, the evening and the morning. We're a day, we're a day, we're a day, we're a day. Repeats it one, two, three, four, five, six times. Three days and three nights between when the garden and Adam. Ooh, three days and three nights. Sign of Jonah, Matthew 19, or 20, or 12, 39 through 50. I bring up the sign of Jonah just in case someone out there in the vast internet audience is thinking this is going to be an easy peasy simple wimple thing. It's not. This is unbelievable. Any time the sign of Jonah, the weeks of the crucifixion, the pattern of the feast days, the high, high holy days, the, the sabbatons of Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits are directly connected. You're in for a mountain, a limitless amount of scripture to study. The third day and the sixth day is not coincidental. God planted on the third day, formed or raised Adam up on three days and three nights subsequently. That's not a coincidence. And yes, I'm aware that the third day and the sixth day do not line up with the crucifixion week. With that said, the first Adam and the last Adam are deeply connected. Unbelievably connected, Romans 5.14, 1 Timothy 2.14, 1 Corinthians 15.45-49. Adam was a man of dust, 1 Corinthians 15.48. And that, and that, that Greek word, tsoikoi, is just this one place in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15.48-49. One place. The point ends. Huzzah. Another point. Finally, God planted a garden. He then formed the bodies of animals and the body of Adam. And then he placed the bodies of animals and the bodies and the body of Adam in the garden after he had breathed the spirit of life in him. Outside the garden from the dust that was caused by someone or something. And as you know, I'm going to start saying to you Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Matthew 12. Something happened to get that dust. Why this order? Why does he make them from dust, put in his breath, Put them in the garden after he had formed them, their bodies. What's the meaning of that? Note the meanings. How many meanings are there of that? Formed from death, dust placed in the garden of life. Observe that I am concluding that animals and Adam had their formation process in common. The system, if you will, was the same for both. The order, the dust, the garden, the breath of the spirit of life. Each one, every component of the creation of the body of these living beings, I submit, was exactly the same. Ecclesiastes 3.18-20. through 20. Three, three, Ecclesiastes 3.18-20 emphasizes this uniformity. 
And if I'm right, duh, then here comes a dump truck. In a dump truck, you can hear beep, 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 preparing to back up and deposit a swamp of more questions on top of you. Obviously, there are details in Genesis 2.8 uh, through 3.17 that require first attention. Secondly, we'll need to figure out Genesis 2.1 through 7. For example, God planted the garden eastward, Genesis 2.8, eastward in Eden, and there he put Adam. This is a triune verse. That's the Elohim. It even says Elohim. That's the us of Genesis 1.26. The name Eden in, it carries the inference of delight. It has also become in the Hebrew a feminine, uh, has a feminine connotation to it a feminine name, but mostly it refers to the eye and judgment. That's what Eden really means in the sense of making decisions, which relates to the tree of life and the tree of death, because the tree of life and the tree of death is all about judgment and decisions and seeing, right? Seeing the difference between evil and good, evil from good, knowing the difference. Those two trees, very important. The true trees are critical, crucial to the purposes of God here. So that's where he puts Adam in the tree, in the uh, in the garden with the tree of life and the tree of death. Ultimately Eve as well. That's a crucial, critical piece of information. So somewhere east of some place, because we really don't know where the garden was. I can guess because of the city of Jerusalem. God, the triune Godhead, sets aside a garden inside of which he places two trees. Most theologians assume the location of the garden was eastward of where Moses was when he wrote Genesis. That's what they think he's trying to say. But we can't know that with any certainty. Genesis 2.10 tells us that the river of Eden, the river of Eden watered the garden, and this river became four rivers, and it watered the entire earth. Does that sound familiar? Obviously, uh, obviously, I have these rivers. They're antediluvian. What I mean by that is pre-Noatic flood, and they no longer exist as they were originally. But hopefully, all of you, when I said this sound familiar, including this vast internet audience, immediately went to Revelation 22.1, the pure river of water of life, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. For those who have traveled to Revelation 22.1 by way of Ezekiel 47.1 through 12, well, aren't you special? You did fantastic. Because how many rivers do I have that do this? I got three of them. I got Genesis 2.10. I got Ezekiel 47.1 through 12. I'm sorry, in Revelation 22.1. There's three rivers. Probably an accident. These three rivers are obviously in a relationship. All provide information to each other. Probably a coincidence that the three rivers. Okay, there's no coincidences in Scripture. And it's not a coincidence. The timeless, omniscient mind cannot have coincidences. Okay, Revelation 22, Ezekiel 47. Lead us back to Genesis 2.10-13. through 13. Now, I've been moving fast. Got to really move fast now. Genesis 2.1 must be resolved. Thus the heavens of the earth and the host of them were finished. Now a lot of people decide the host of them. Esbaham. That word in the Hebrew. There's this dispute between those who assert that that's the angelic host. And those who would say the host of them are the stars and planetary objects. In other words, the matter of the universe. Psalm 33.6 continually, or contextually, sorry, uses Esbaham as referring to the matter, energy, Space and time. It's referring to God stretching out the universe. Isaiah 40, 26, 45, 12. Isaiah 45:12 specifically is the stretching of the universe. Anyway, again, matter, energy, space, and time. Now, I like to include gravity here, strong and weak nuclear force, but those are definitively God, the person himself, doing that himself. Gravity is God. Isaac Newton, he's absolutely right. 
God is also holding everything together. Jesus Christ in all things consists. Colossians 1, 15 through 18. In Jesus Christ, all things consist. Anyway, I'm the, I'm on the side that sees Genesis 2, 1 as being consistent with uh, Psalm 33, 6 and Isaiah 40, 26, Isaiah 45, 12. While conceding, I have to tell you this, it's all, because I, full disclosure, Espiam is used to describe armies in other passages. But I think it's obvious there uh, that he, uh, he's referring, 33, 6 of Psalm and 45, 12 make it, they directly connect to Genesis 2, uh, 2, 1. Anyway, Genesis 2.15, Then the Lord God, that's the YHVH Elohim, took Adam and put him in the garden to tend and keep it. What's the obvious question there? What's the difference between tend and keep? What does it mean? Now Genesis 2.5, the mist, because there's no range. What did I say, range? No rain. There's no rain, that's why we have mist. We have the hydrologic cycle here. The hydrologic cycle was mist. wasn't rain. Due to the pre-flood worldwide uniform temperature, no time today to compare contrast antediluvian ecology from the post-diluvian ecology other than to say they are contradistinct, unrecognizable. And when you place them side by side, the pre-flood and the post-flood world, the post-flood has rain, snow, seas, volcanic activities, seismic activities, deserts. The Antediluvian or the pre-flood didn't have any of that. No rain, no snow, no seas, no volcanic activity, no seismic activity, no earthquakes, no deserts. How about wind? Was there wind? Hurricanes, typhoons, monsoons, any of that stuff there? What about wind? There's some non-conformities to discuss with regard to the two worlds. No temperature changes? Other than day and night? Anyway, the whole earth was watered by a mist that went up from the earth, preparing for the astounding array of vegetation that was to spring forth from this. We cannot even begin to imagine the magnitude of the frondescence that God brought out of the earth. All soil was fertile. Every single drop of soil was fertile. All plants were good for food. Every single plant was good for food. All means all. Consider the implications of that. The difference between the two earths now, if you are the two the two worlds, I should probably mention that the entire new city of Jerusalem, Revelation 22, will be composed of much of the Adamic Eden. I've even told you that I believe, and we'll get into whether or not um, there is. Uh, uh, I won't get to it now. I'll just skip it. I don't have time. I was going to talk about uh, time here and dimensions, the dimensions. But I'm going to mention that uh, the new city of Revelation 22 is is very much like the Adamic Eden, but there's so many, so much more of it. There has to be more of it because he wants it all filled. I'm hurrying. River of life, no seas, for example. I have a river of life, but I don't have any seas. The same as Eden, for example. In the, no seas in the in the uh, pre-Adamic, or I'm sorry, the uh, pre-Noatic world. Indescribable beauty. Filled to overflowing with plants and trees. Fruit that does not wither, Ezekiel 47.12. The Adamic Eden, the Millennial Kingdom, the New City of Jerusalem, they're all stuck together. They're all intertwined. The New City of Jerusalem carries forward the some of the characteristics of the first two, but then it adds this extraordinary amount of volume. Unbelievable size. Far more than the existing earth. The New City of Jerusalem... Uh, first and foremost, there's no darkness there in the new city. Death has banished forever and ever. There is no dust in the new city. It's very obvious from the description. No dust. I had dust in Eden, 
but I don't have dust in the new city. No more dust. Why doesn't why don't I have dust? The first easy answer to that is we don't need to make bodies anymore. Got all the bodies. Don't need to resurrect anymore from the dust. Got all the resurrected. There's, there are desolate areas in the millennium, though. There, the oceans are desolate. There's evil there in the millennium. There's death. Isaiah 6, 65, 20. Anyway, Adam's assignment was to till the land and keep the garden. Genesis 2, 5, 2, 15. Again, what does that mean? Why, why two? If it's the same thing, does he repeat himself? Is that your view? That God says, well, I'm going to say 10 and I'm going to say keep and it's the same thing because I'm not smart enough to know the difference. If you think things like that, buy one of these. You're in the wrong place. That could be a joke for years. You realize that, what Sherry has given me. Again, what does that mean? Why are animals afraid of death? Because they are. And they age. And we can understand some of that, but you got to get those questions completely filled up. I've given you this much. How much is there? Oh, there's... I, I can't even begin to tell you how much there is. You've got to have enough volume of information to where you can understand all of it. Most of it is you can, and you can go on to the next levels. Here's what I was going to ask earlier, because i got time. Don't I have 30 seconds? Is the new earth multidimensional? Because it could be. Can God put something in the same place and have it be multidimensional? You see these people that think universe is multi, they're multi, multiverse, they call it. There's billions of multiverses. They have to have that in order for their evolutionary atheism to have a chance mathematically. So that's why they're doing it. But is the earth multidimensional? Uh, that's the seven earth view. So there's seven earths in the same spot, but each one is different and they're multidimensional. When you can go between the three of them, they're, they're, they're each have their own individual time. So that view is out there. It's been out there for a long, long I didn't think of it, in case you were wondering. <laughs> exactly right. It's in some, some silly movie somewhere. Okay. Are we made of math? Remember me asking that? That's a very cool question. Are we made of math? And that's just a few of the ten thousands of questions that remain. And we'll answer every single one of them next week. <laughs> okay. Call it good. <laughs>